passage today is John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your help this morning to hear, see, and understand, and to receive your word. Pray you would uh, grant me grace as I speak that everything would be to the building up of your people, and to grant the hearers grace that they would be edified and encouraged in Christ. May your word bear fruit here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing on in our uh, Gospel of John series this morning, this time with the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. If you recall, the book of John began with the doctrinal statement about Jesus' deity. In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later in chapter 1, John corroborates the accounts of Jesus' baptism found in the other Gospels, where the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove and then remains on him, further establishing that Jesus is the Son of God. John's whole book, in fact, is written as an apologetic, providing evangelistic evidence that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. This is John 20, verse 31. And so as we too have been following along in Jesus' earthly ministry, first with his effectual calling of the disciples, then in the account of his miraculous winemaking, and today in his cleansing of the temple, we too are being confronted with evidences, compounding one upon another that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. And the listener is left without excuse for failing to believe in his name. John's narrative picks up now, a short time after the wedding in Cana, as Jesus and his disciples make their way to Jerusalem in time for the Passover festival. This is one of several accounts uh, Scripture gives us of Jesus attending the Passover, and this is the first account during his adult life, and the final account is going to be uh, during the days leading up to and ending in his crucifixion. The Passover festival was instituted by God in order to commemorate the miraculous deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh, their evil oppressor. Recall how God told his servant Moses that, as an act of judgment on Egypt, 
he was going to take all of the firstborn sons in the land, and that in order to be spared this plague of death, each Israelite household was to take an unblemished lamb, kill it, and paint some of its blood on the posts and the crosspiece of their door. God would then pass over those homes, which were marked off, sparing the children inside. He would see the sacrifice made according to his instructions, and those who were under the blood would be saved from death. And so the Lord had instituted that the nation of Israel keep the Passover feast annually as a memorial to the Lord's mercy and faithfulness. It was and is considered the most important event on the Jewish calendar. In Jesus' day, thousands of people flocked to Jerusalem in the month of Nisan, which is April according to our calendars, uh, to gather at the temple to offer the appropriate sacrifice, an unblemished animal, on behalf of their family, and to pay the temple tax. Uh, Jesus, who kept the law, all aspects of the law perfectly, was on his way to observe this ceremonial festival, and his attendance this time around would now thrust him into the public eye. Jesus' first sign, which we looked at last week, uh, making wine at the wedding in Cana, it took place in a small, out-of-the-way town at what was likely a family or friend's wedding. Now he has arrived in Israel's largest city at the most significant event of the year, in the temple, which is the most prominent place. At this point in history, Jerusalem's population is estimated to have normally been around 40,000 people, but it would swell to five or six times that during Passover with all of the traffic coming in. So Jesus' next sign would take place where many, many thousands of people would congregate over the next several days. As Jesus enters the court of the Gentiles, the outer courtyard of the temple, uh, we can see it as kind of a homecoming. This is his father's house, after all. This is supposed to be a place set apart for the worship and adoration of Yahweh, the one true God. Incidentally, the court of the Gentiles, this outer court, was as close as non-Jews were allowed to get to the temple itself. But here, instead of finding worship, Jesus finds commerce. Instead of prayer and almsgiving, he hears the bleating and bellowing of animals, and he sees the bustle of business merchants, ostensibly Jewish merchants, selling animals and changing money. Now the issue is not that all of these activities were unnecessary. Under the Jewish law in regards to the Passover festival, the head male of every household was to bring an animal and sacrifice it to the Lord. And since many of these people were coming from long distances away, it was much more practical to purchase an animal in Jerusalem than to bring one along on the commute. Uh, there would be some risk if you try to bring an unblemished animal along, along on a journey and uh, you know you could get injured and then you would have to find another one anyway so they just picked one up while they were there so the, the sale of animals was a legitimate need in order to worship the lord as he required also during the passover festival there would have been the annual collection of the temple tax in which every male over the age of 20 was required to give a half shekel of silver and uh, it's a small amount, but it was in order to pay for the upkeep and maintenance of the temple. And this tax was uh, to be paid in standardized currency, which was pure silver. Again, these travelers would not have had that currency with them, so they would exchange their money locally for a fee in order to pay their share of the tax. But these activities, in their essence, they were not wrong, they were not sinful, but they did not belong in the temple courts, which were to be reserved for prayer and for giving alms, which are donations, 
And historians tell us that these business activities at one point would have been carried out on the nearby hills and the streets outside of the temple grounds, which would have been an appropriate distance away. But for whatever reason now, perhaps out of convenience or maybe uh, profitability, uh, these merchants had moved inside of the temple walls, which uh, was turning the grounds into a sort of a one-stop shop for all things spiritual. On top of this, it was not uncommon for these merchants to charge unfair prices for their animals and their currency, taking advantage of sincere worshippers who were basically at their mercy. You can think about, uh, you know, paying $8 for a bag of popcorn in a movie theater or $10 for a hot dog in a Jets game where they say, no outside food is allowed. Well, this is kind of what was happening there. These vendors had cornered the market and in some cases were extorting their customers. And for this reason, Jesus, in his second temple cleansing, uh, which is recorded in the other three Gospels, and this is near the end of his ministry, he accuses these people of turning the temple into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. Um, they were bringing their fraudulent practices onto the doorstep of God's own home, and they were doing it in God's name. And they were impeding the worship of those who would do it sincerely, both Jew and Gentile. So now Jesus, he enters into this scenario, and he does something that many people think is out of character for him. He gets angry. Depending on the type of church you grew up in, and the lens through which you read your Bible, the idea of Jesus being anything other than mild-mannered and soft-spoken could be a foreign concept to you. It might even be offensive to you if you've come to think of Jesus as the counterpart to the so-called wrathful God of the Old Testament, someone who loves and affirms everyone unconditionally. But this is not the Jesus of the Scriptures. This is not the Jesus who always and only did his Father's will. This is not the Jesus who, though he was gentle and lowly, called hypocritical Pharisees, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, called them collectively a brood of vipers. This is not the Jesus who rebuked his own disciples for getting between him and children, rebuked them for jockeying for position and arguing amongst themselves. This is not the Jesus who commands us to put sin to death lest we be put to death. This, this is the Jesus that spoke more often about hell than he did about heaven. If this is not the Jesus we are following, then we are following a Jesus of our own making, and not the one of the Bible. The Jesus of Scripture is, as our confession puts it, the second person of the Holy Trinity, and is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance, and equal with Him. Unquote. Jesus is God. He is in full agreement with the Father, always has been, always will be. He is one in purpose with the Holy Spirit. They together form the Trinity, a tri-unity. It should be no surprise to us that Jesus was filled with righteous indignation over his father's house being dishonored and turned into a marketplace. So much so that he responds with more than words, but with action. Now in verse 15, we read that he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts with the sheep in auction. Using what was at hand, Jesus fashioned a whip or a scourge out of rope and drove the animals forcefully out of the courtyard with their owners behind them. There's no evidence of animal or human cruelty here, just authoritative, unquestioned command. There's likewise no evidence of any defiance or an uprising. Everyone just leaves. This would have been hundreds or thousands of animals and people, like a massive roundup, all being driven by one man. 
This is a testament to the force and moral authority with which the order was given. Some commentators suggest that this act of driving out the mixed multitude was a miracle, that it was a demonstration of Christ's omnipotence, that he could clear out such a large crowd without any resistance. I don't know that the text gives us a definitive answer on that, but we can safely call it a sign of Christ's authority and power, if not a miracle, strictly speaking. Jesus then turns his attention to the money changers and begins dumping out their currency and flipping over tables. Again, there's no record of a single person being harmed in what Jesus did, but clearly business was done for the day. You can picture these merchants crawling around on the ground, scrambling, trying to find all of their fallen coins. And as someone who works in the field of accounting, I can tell you this would have probably made balancing the day's books a bit of a challenge. Then in verse 16, Jesus turns to the bird keepers and demands that they leave as well, saying, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. They too quickly vacate the premises. The temple of God was not intended for earthly business. It was meant for heavenly business, kingdom business. It was meant for the Father's business. Jesus was about his Father's business. Some of us here either work in or have inherited or are otherwise involved in a family business, whether it be farming or construction or what have you. In ancient times, it was even more common that sons would carry on the work of their earthly father. It was basically assumed that he would do so. Jesus himself was said to be a carpenter, having worked alongside Joseph, his earthly father. So we can understand the concept of being committed to the family business, working hard for the good of the family, making decisions that further the success of the family company, carrying oneself in a way that protects and defends the reputation of our father, his name, his house, and his business. Now in today's world, many of us are able to choose our own career path. We can blaze our own trail, so to speak. We can choose a job or a profession to our liking, suited to our interests and abilities, sometimes to the detriment of our relationships with our earthly fathers, who would prefer us to follow in their footsteps rather than have their business go to someone outside the family, the house being divided, we could say. But this was never a question for God's only begotten Son, Jesus. Since before the foundation of the world, Jesus had one purpose, the business of his heavenly Father. He was heir apparent to the throne. No thing and no one would come between him and doing his father's business. As a young child, 12 years old, having attended Passover with Mary and Joseph, Jesus lingered behind at the temple. We can read this in Luke chapter 2. His parents found him sitting there with the Jewish leaders, listening to them and asking them questions. People were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents chastised him for staying behind, Jesus answered them by saying, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Nothing would prevent Christ from doing all that was given him to do by the Father. No sinful distraction, no creature comfort, no desire for his own glory could stand in the way of Jesus fulfilling all his Father's will. Satan himself would later tempt Jesus in this very location, this very temple, taking him to the highest point, the pinnacle of the temple, and daring Jesus to throw himself down over 300 feet to prove his deity and draw a crowd. 
we know that Jesus resisted, because his course on earth was to be one of suffering and kingdom proclamation, not cheap celebrity status, not drawing a crowd. It was as the prophetic Psalm 69 foretold, zeal for his father's house would consume him, it would consume Jesus. Not just here in the temple cleansing, but throughout his life, spent in perfect submission to his father's will, to the establishment of his father's house, to the glory of his father's name. His disciples remembered the psalm, Psalm 69, and they recognized this. But the unbelieving Jews, who were blind to the spiritual reality, came to him and challenged him, saying, and we're now in verse 18, if you're following along, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are? On whose authority have you done this? Now here, standing in front of them, was God's own son. He had every right, and he had every authority. Jesus was co-owner of title and deed, not only to the temple, but to all those inside of it. But instead of giving them a straight answer, as he would do later on in his ministry, Jesus replies with a prophetic parable, a statement or story that would demonstrate his omniscience, his all-knowingness. And this was often Jesus' way of answering his skeptics with secret sayings that would deliberately shroud his identity and purpose. This way, only those with spiritual ears to hear and spiritual eyes to see would know the truth. So Jesus says to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews reply with, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Well, the Jews clearly misunderstand. So John clarifies for his readers in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And we have to understand and try to understand how bizarre this must have sounded to the Jews. In their world, nothing was more important than the temple. It was central to their religious life, their culture, and for many, their careers. The temple grounds in those days were being restored and overseen by King Herod who was rebuilding Solomon's temple that had been destroyed 500 years before. This was a huge undertaking. Herod wanted, he wanted not only to just resurrect what had been destroyed, but he wanted to expand it. He was planning to double the size of the original temple. The grounds were eventually to cover a total of 36 acres, a massive area. Its construction involved an estimated workforce of 18,000 people. And the temple proper, the temple building within the grounds had taken 46 years to complete, and the work on the outer courts would continue on for decades. And for Herod, this was a display of administrative achievement. For Israel, it was a source of cultural and natural, sorry, national pride. But the current state of the temple and the practices that were going on inside of it proved that it had all become a massive exercise in missing the point. Here in our story, Jesus had exposed two things. First of all, he had exposed the age-old problem of false worship. People paying lip service to the Lord, offering sacrifices and alms, but whose hearts were far away. It is an old problem going on for hundreds of years. Listen to the, Lord prophet, the Lord's prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier in regards to temple worship in his day. If you want to turn there, it says Isaiah chapter 1 starting in verse 10.
It was addressed towards people who would, uh, you know, keep up the appearance of holiness while whose hearts were far away. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my corpse? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Without hearts that are tuned to God, that are zealous for his house and consumed with his business, all of the offerings in the world, all of the long-winded prayers, all of the Sabbath and festival observances are nothing but a burden to the Lord. It is, as the temple had become, spectacle without substance. The text tell us, tells us that there were those in Jesus' day who took interest in his signs, in his miracles, and yet wanted nothing to do with his message of repentance and a life of obedience. Large numbers of people believed in him for a time, but as hard times and persecution came, few would remain. Let us not deceive ourselves. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows what is in man now, as he did then. He knows his true worshipers from the sign seekers. He knows if we are here because we desire to please him, or if we'd rather be elsewhere. He knows if our worship is lip service or sincere service to him and his people. Jesus knows if we are seeking him by faith for his sake, or if we are living to glorify ourselves for our own sake. The temptation is still there today. As our worship gets more polished, our prayers more eloquent, our harmonies tighter, perhaps, maybe one day we'll have a sanctuary of our own. The temptation might be there to think that we are accomplishing great things for God, but perhaps that we and we our church and our own congregation is the main attraction. This would not be unlike the first century Jews and they did that with the temple. Maybe we see God as a means to our own ends, instead of him and his glory being the ultimate end. I hope we don't think of ourselves that we, you know, maybe want to succeed in life, and so we include God in it a little bit. Maybe I want my finances blessed, and so I'll give to the church. I want the respect of my peers. I need to legitimize my own desire for attention and admiration so I'll serve in the church. In this way, we might find ourselves moving the tables inside, trying to get some of our own glory as God gets his, trying to accomplish our own sinful agenda alongside our Father's business. Brothers and sisters, let us not be double-minded in this way. May our love and worship be sincere. May our lives be free of hypocrisy and malice. 
May we cease to do evil and learn to do good. May we seek justice and correct oppression and bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. For surely Christ knows our hearts, and he only entrusts himself to those who entrust themselves to him, those whose faith results in true spiritual fruit. For the unbelieving Jews in our text, Jesus had exposed not only their need for repentance, he had exposed the limitations of a system that was never meant to be permanent. Jesus came, ultimately, not to correct the use of the temple, but to fulfill it. Here, in front of these Pharisees, was the one whom the temple, the offerings, and the entire priestly system was pointing to. Let's skip ahead in the book of John for a moment to chapter 4. Let's take a look at Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. If you remember, Jesus here has told this woman her life story. He's exposed her sin. And then she, instead of, I think there's an interesting contrast between her and the, and the Pharisees, instead of challenging Jesus or becoming skeptical, she, she just humbly inquires of him. She says, Lord, I know you're a man of God. So she inquires of him, and they have this exchange in chapter 4, starting in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The time was coming, and had now arrived, for God's people to turn their attention away from the types and shadows, and to the substance, Jesus Christ, the true and eternal temple, the one through whom true worship with the Father could come, worship free of greed and corruption, worship for the glory of God and his glory alone. Jesus would literally be consumed by zeal for his Father's house. After a short time of walking the earth, being despised and rejected by his own kinsmen, Jesus would himself be exchanged for silver into the hands of the chief priests. Jesus himself would be whipped and scourged, driven outside the gate where he would willingly give himself as the sinful, unblemished offering for all those who entrust themselves to him. And then, as he foretold in our text, he would raise himself after three days. The work on the earthly temple would never be complete. Herod's temple never reached completion. It was still in progress when Jesus cleansed it a second time later in his ministry. There was still corruption in the courts. Its construction was still in progress in AD 70 when the Romans overthrew Jerusalem and God destroyed it, never to be rebuilt. The temple itself would never be completed. And beyond that, the work in the temple was never complete. Hundreds of years of animals killed and blood spilled could never finally atone for sin. Hundreds of years of intercessory prayers 
made by priests for their own sin and the sin of the people, could never completely assuage guilt. The temple work was never done. But Christ, in three days, accomplished what the temple could never do. Scripture teaches us, and we affirm with the saints throughout history, the Apostles' Creed, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. However, on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. In Hebrews chapter 10, we can learn about the transition from the earthly temple to the temple of Christ. The transition from the earthly priesthood to the eternal priesthood. Listen to these words, Hebrews 10, if you want to turn there, and we'll draw to a close with this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year, sorry, every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So I think we can see there that the temple, the time of the temple was drawing to a close. And this is because for all of us who come to God through Christ, the priestly work is done. The sacrifice has been made, the debt has been paid. All of the functions of the temple have been fulfilled. Jesus then, as our perfect and permanent priest, cleanses us and sets our hearts right. He does the sanctifying work of overturning our misplaced affections, and driving out the things that don't belong. He rebuilds us into his own image, the new covenant, the temple of God, with his own spirit dwelling inside of us and his law written on our hearts. 
Because his temple was raised on the third day, we have resurrection hope in this world and eternal life in the next. We are now, as the church, being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2. And individually, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20 says, Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within us, whom we have from God. For we are not our own, we were bought with a price. Therefore, let us glorify God in our bodies. Romans 12, verse 1. Let us, by the mercies of God, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. In this way, whether we find ourselves here in this place, and we're thankful that we've been able to gather in this place, in the future we may find ourselves in our homes, or wherever God's providence may have us gathering, we, we may still worship Him where, wherever we are. We may worship Him in spirit and truth, looking always to Christ alone as our priest, our Passover sacrifice, and our everlasting, eternal temple. As in John's heavenly vision, recorded in Revelation chapter 21, where he saw there was no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. To him be all glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time that we've had to look into your word. We thank you for another Lord's Day in which we can gather to exalt the risen Christ, the eternal temple, and that we can together uh, renew our hope and confidence in your promises and your covenant faithfulness. As we turn now to the Lord's table, we pray that you would bless the elements, that you would cause them to strengthen our faith, and that by your Spirit we may be stirred up to sincere love and good works. May we always be about our Father's business, to the glory of your name and the building of your kingdom. In Christ we pray. Amen.